All right. How we doing? Good. All right. Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, good to, for those that are unseen to be joining us too. We had a few hiccups with technology, durr, because as you know, every time I get anywhere close to technology, things crash. <laughs> Why should today be different? So we had a few hiccups with Zoom, but hopefully that's working now. So, uh, and Mike is taking a very well-deserved uh, weekend off, so we wish him well, and we'll just uh, plow our way through this. We're continuing in a series uh, that Mike started called The Power of Gentle Persuasion. And uh, as Randy mentioned today, we're going to look at the opposite side of that, the problem with forceful persuasion. And when we think about what the problem is with forceful persuasion, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, the first thing is, if, oh, technology. <laughs> there it is. See, the problem with this is you don't know which way's up. <laughs> that makes a difference. But the problem with forceful persuasion, the first problem with it is, very simply, just like my remote because of me, it doesn't work. <laughs> There's an old adage that says, those convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. That's not a Bible verse, but Dale Carnegie printed that. My grandma used to say that. Uh, and But there's a lot of truth in that because you can use force and power to change somebody's behavior. But changing behavior doesn't change people's minds. It doesn't change their attitudes, and it doesn't change their hearts. So if we accomplish something involuntarily, even though we win the battle, we lose the war. So the first problem then with forceful persuasion is, in the long term, it will never bear fruit. The second problem with forceful persuasion is that it does work <laughs> in the short term. So if your goal is simply to alter people's behaviors, unfortunately, force is one of the easiest ways of accomplishing that. And when we think about force, that's why I love this statement, those convinced against their will, because I think that contains a very accurate definition of what force looks like in practical application against our will. See, it takes force to get something to go a different direction. If your car is moving, it takes the force of brakes to stop it. If your car is stopped, it takes the force of your motor to move it. And con conversely, you know, similarly, if we're going in a direction other than somebody up here wants us to go, we can use force to alter that. And in the short term, we can change the behaviors. But Beyond that, there's a great verse here in uh, in Psalms. I don't know if anybody hasn't read Psal the Psalms lately, but I really, in modern society, always encourage people to go back and revisit those because they honestly are like they were just written yesterday. The Psalms are all laid out quite similarly, where it's David starts off by lamenting what he sees with his eyes, what he's experienced in his life. He's lamenting how things are and how screwed up they are. 
And they start off with him lamenting the fact that, hey, I'm looking at this world and I'm seeing good guys lose. I'm seeing bad guys win. I'm seeing people get rewarded for doing bad things. I see people get punished for doing the right thing. It, it's all messed up. Uh, there's no justice out there. But then he goes on and it gets even worse because of what he sees with his eyes and feels with his feelings. He starts to look at God sideways. And he goes, hey, where are you in all this? And then naturally, what's going on here affects what he sees up here too. And he starts to question God. But then it, they all go into a third stage where he's reminded that he can't just trust what he sees and feels, that God is still very much in control. And he starts to see things from a different angle, and he starts to take the long-term view. And that's where he finds peace, because he starts to realize, you know, just because things are this way at the moment doesn't mean that God is unaware. It doesn't mean that he's powerless. It doesn't mean that he's helpless. It simply means that his plan is unfolding, but it's going to take some patience. It's going to take some endurance. It's going to take some time. But in the long-term view, God promises to make all things right. And that's why I love in this particular psalm, he really paints an actual accurate picture of leaders that use forceful persuasion to inflict their will on other people. It's in Psalm 73, it says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginings have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. <clears throat> with arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. And then the next line is almost amusing. So with some people out there that are doing all of this bad stuff, what's their reaction to it? Therefore, their people turn to them. <laughs> now, I would think you'd turn away, right? But unfortunately, the effect that all this has is oftentimes we turn towards our oppressors instead of away from them. And part of it is fear. Fear of violence and fear of uh, malice, and part of it is also deeper than that, is a belief if you can't beat them, join them. That's why I love that word iniquity. What that word means is it's a particular kind of sin or wrong that's rooted in injustice, unequalness. In other words, it's not fair. Now those happen to be the first words out of my mouth when I was a baby. It's not fair. And the root of every resentment I ever had was because of injustice. It's not fair, therefore I'm mad. <laughs> and resentment is bred by iniquity. But if you look at it from a different angle, there's people that love iniquity. They embrace iniquity. You know why? Because they're on the flip side of it. These are the people that are above the law. 
they love a two-tiered justice system. They love that things aren't fair because the scales are tilted in their favor. And sometimes the way that they control and manipulate other people is they con them into thinking, if you do what I want you to do, you can join our club. <laughs> you can become one of the winners here. But the joke is they'll never let you in. It's a club and you ain't in it. <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be. But a lot of times people will, without realizing it, align themselves with wrong things for the promise of personal gain. And that's another more subtle view of how force is used. Uh, so this leads the question then, if a lot of forceful persuasion has to do with threats, with fear, then it leads the question, doesn't it? What exactly is it that we are afraid of? Now, Mike might approach this a little differently, but I can just lay this out how this was taught to me. And because this gave me a great place in my head to file a lot of things that I didn't know how to file. The way this was explained to me is we are all exactly the same when it comes to our hard wiring, to our programming. See, we're all operating by the same operating system. Now, people look a lot different, they react a lot differently, but at the core, we all really want and need exactly the same things. Because what we are driven by are three God-given instincts. And God is not in the business of reducing or removing these instincts. He's not in the business of turning them off. What he what we can do is seek different ways of satisfying them. That's what makes us different. It's not in the fact that we have instincts, but we have different views of what will satisfy them. The three God-given instincts we have, and by the way, this is as true at the zoo as it is in the church, or in the real world. Not that this isn't the real world. <laughs> this is actually more real than that world, believe it or not. Amen. But... The, this is just as true in the animal kingdom. Animals operate by the same set of um, instincts. We all have a need for social acceptance. In other words, we all need the approval of our peers. I don't have a dashboard on, or a gauge on my own dashboard that I can look at to tell me if I'm okay or not, to tell me if I'm cool or uncool, if I'm dressed right or dressed wrong, if I'm acting right, if I'm acting wrong. I need other people, my peers, to give me that feedback. So if you're my peer, you have a gauge on your dashboard for me, and I maybe, if I'm your peer, I have one for you. So I got to look to you for approval. I need you to tell me, to give me that feedback if I'm okay or not. That's called social acceptance. And it's not just that we want it, we have to have it. The second God-given instinct is for security. I don't want you messing with my stuff out here, so I lock it up and build walls around it, but I don't want you messing with my stuff in here either. So I lock that up and build walls around. So I need security. I need to feel safe. The third God-given instinct is for sexuality, and that doesn't just mean a physical act, but it's the whole big picture. We all want love, approval, companionship. We want somebody to be committed to us or us committed to them. We want 
the extension of that. We want families in a lot of cases, children, grandchildren. Uh, we want a uh, house in the country, a picket fence, 2.3 dogs. You know, that, that all has to do with an instinct for sexuality. Now, with any, when anything threatens our satisfaction of these, we, just like animals, we have two basic options, anger and or fear. Anger, fight, fear, flight. Anger and fear. Or we can worry based in fear, or we can, you know, yell and scream and beat our fists based in, in anger. Uh, Mike always adds a third one, fight, flight, or freeze. <laughs> and that's another option, just vapor lock. But fight or flight. Now, what makes us different, again, is we... We all need these things. So if we took a group like this today and asked, what do you want? If you could have anything, magic, genie in a, in a bottle or whatever, you know, what would you want? Think of how many diverse answers we'd get. Oh, I want a million dollars. I want that education. I want that job or that career. I want this person to die. I want that person to come back to life. What do you want? Oh, I want him or I want her. Six months later, what do you want? I just want to get rid of him. <laughs> I just want to get rid of her. <laughs> but then you ask a better question. What do you really want? I think we'll always get the same one answer. What do you really want? Peace. Peace. Happiness. That feeling of going, ah. See, that's what we really want. All those other things we clamor for, are a means to that end. And all of those things that we would offer as options are actually, they all fit into social acceptance, security, and sexuality, don't they? Why do I want a million dollars? Security. Or maybe prestige. Ooh, I could be rich. Uh, why do we want him or her? You know, because then I could be happy. Why do I want to get rid of him or her? Same reason. Then I could be happy. <laughs> so, in satisfying these instincts, we get what we really want. But when they're not satisfied or when they're hurt or threatened, this is what opens the door for people to manipulate us. Because we make bad decisions based in defects of character. When I get scared, I don't make good decisions. When I get angry, I don't make good decisions. When my pride is threatened, I don't make good decisions based on pride and ego. Christianity is a whole different model of how to make decisions. It's very practical because we operate by the law of love. So what motivates our decisions is love. Not fear, not anger, not any of those things. And the law of love is superior because then we get to do what we want to do, what we're motivated to do, and that's really true freedom, as we're going to see. And by the law of love, the Bible promises that perfect love casts out fear. The decisions made in love are superior. The very word gospel, this is another problem with forceful persuasion, is the New Testament is called the gospel. And the word gospel means good news. And fear-based news is not received as good, is it? That's why a lot of people won't even watch the news. They won't even read the newspaper. Why? 
because uh, newspapers are obsolete, Mark. <laughs> That's why they don't read them. They're not really available much. <laughs> but the other reason is because people don't even want to read the news because it's all bad. Quite frankly, good news doesn't sell newspapers or, you know, make get hits on an internet site. So the gospel, by its very nature, was meant to be received as good. And if it's not presented as good news, then it corrupts the whole purpose of the gospel. Yet another problem with forceful persuasion is that it often leads to hypocrisy. Because the people that are in leadership that coerce other people to do things, they don't live by the laws that they make, do they? That often just in the natural realm drives me crazy. Rules for thee, but not for me. Do as I say, but not as I do. We're all wired to be very quick to recognize hypocrisy. And it hypocritical leaders can be obeyed, but never respected. They also cannot lead by example, can they? You see, Christianity is all about leading by example. That's why Christ is so critical to an understanding of Christianity. He didn't just tell us what to do. He modeled it. He showed us what to do. He showed us what was possible. And that's a great thing because I need, it's like going to a, taking an auto mechanics class and not having a teacher. You know, I can't just read a book and go do this. I need somebody to show me, not just tell me. And I can't just pull that info out of a book. And that's why he was a great teacher, because he led by example. Now, there's a principle in recovery circles of our public relations are driven by attraction rather than promotion. And I really love that because attraction is a motivating force, but it draws us. It doesn't drive us. You see, what it's about is leading, and not just leading by being in front of us, but leading by example, and more importantly, leading by encouragement rather than driving. So the picture of Christianity is that you don't have somebody behind you driving you with a whip or somebody in front of you dragging you along with a rope. It's somebody coming alongside. And that's the right way of doing it. Now you can drive and drag. There's a couple of great illustrations of what this looks like. Uh, one of them, I think it was Mike a while back that gave this example of these young farmhands out on a farm. And they were wrestling with this young, uh, this young uh, calf and trying to get this calf to go up a loading chute and into this trailer. And they're trying everything they can think of. They're, they're beating this poor thing, and the more they hit it, it goes in every direction but up the loading chute. And they're screaming and yelling at it and waving their arms, thinking they can scare it into going up that chute. And, and they're trying to push it and force it up that thing. And the more they tried to get it to go in that one right direction, the more it resisted. And the more it spooked it got. So finally, this one older farm lady sees the dilemma they're in, so she walks out there, climbs into the pen, doesn't say a word, 
She just climbs into the pen, walks up to this calf, and holds out her thumb. And the calf, assuming the thumb is something different than a thumb, starts sucking on her thumb. And she just slowly backs this calf up the loading chute and into the trailer. Attraction rather than promotion. There's another great example I love uh, from the world of business. Have anybody ever heard of W. Edwards Deming? That guy wrote, the, he invented continuous improvement. One man that changed the entire national economy of Japan between the 1960s and 1970s. A genius of business. And... Uh, but he gave this example one time of some engineers and architects that built this really nice building, and they had a grand opening and invited all these people to come see it. And this one person is looking at the outside of this building, and he notices, he says, there's no sidewalks. Where are the sidewalks? All it was was grass all around this building. And this architect says, well, we couldn't put in the sidewalks because we don't know where the people are going to walk yet. See, he was smart enough to know that he could design a sidewalk system, but it doesn't mean it was the best way of designing it. And sure enough, somebody is going to cut across it and kill the grass making a trail, right? So then what do you do? Well, they're not going where we want them to go. So now we're going to put up a keep off the grass sign. That'll work, right? Eh, no. Now we got to put in a little chain link thing. You know, that'll not. Nah, now they're stepping over that. Well, now we need armed guards. <laughs> but instead, this guy in his wisdom knew, instead of trying to force people to stay on the sidewalk, why don't you wait and just see where they want to go? And once the trails show up in the grass, we'll lay concrete on them. See, that is another perfect example of going with the flow, to let people do what they want to do or going to do, but just you know, not fight, the, not fight the flow. So with all of this, it, it helps us to understand more of the problem with forceful persuasion in relationships here and in promoting Christianity here. But more importantly, what we try to do in our teachings at Hope is not just deal with relationships here, but relationships here. And I think this opens up what I believe to be the biggest problem with forceful persuasion. And that is, it's not just about how people perceive our message and respond to it, but it's how it makes God look. You see, I've often said that if there was only one topic that I could teach on, what I would consistently want to talk to people about is how to form an accurate conception of God. Hands down, the one topic above all topics where I wish I could just take my head off and screw it on somebody else's shoulders for 10 minutes, it's in order to get them to have a better conception. Now, when I started uh, getting into uh, recovery and into church and all that, I thought I had a conception of God. But I was wrong. What I came in with was a misconception of God that I thought was an accurate conception. And I was dead wrong about God. But I didn't know that. And if you get this wrong, if your conception of God is wrong, it will poison not only 
everything with your relationship with him, but it will poison everything with your relationship with others. Three big rocks that we have to get into that jar. One is God is a loving God. If you don't believe that, I got nothing for you. <laughs> I mean, I all I can suggest is go move into a cave or lock yourself in a basement and don't you dare ever do anything wrong the rest of your life. But even then you're doomed <laughs> because you've already screwed up. So game over, you lose, nothing you can do. So God is, though, a loving God. And our hope and our faith has to be rooted in that fact. God is love. And we don't need to fear him. The second is God has feelings. See, we often leave that up. We don't believe that God can feel emotion, that he gets happy or sad. And if he feels sad, it's maybe the British sad, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, maybe teary-eyed or one single tear running down. I think one of the most significant passages in the entire New Testament, two words, one sentence, two words, but it's one of the most powerful statements in the whole Bible. Christ wept. And the Greeks were very, very specific in their communications. The word wept in the Greek didn't mean that one tear running down his cheek. It meant ball like a baby. And what he was crying over was feeling the pain of the Jewish nation. See, he didn't just have sympathy, he had empathy. He felt their pain, and it broke his heart. And he bawled like a baby because of it. And why that's important is because you can. it only makes sense if you tie it to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. See, it, for anybody that has kids, you know, are you? can you be at peace if your child is sick? Of course not. If they're sick, you're sick. Can you be happy when they're sad? No. Can you feel great when they're in pain? Of course not. You are inseparably linked to your children, and you feel what they feel, even if you don't want to. But that's love, and love makes us vulnerable. God's love for us makes him vulnerable. In what way? How can God be vulnerable? He can feel pain. So, and it's not that it breeds weakness. It's that it breeds motivation. Because if your child's sick, you're going to do something about it. And that's love. And But here's the main point. God is not a control freak. And that is critical. The theologian Harold Eberly once said, that God does not control the world, but he is in charge of the world. There's a difference between being in, con in control versus being in charge. Okay, we're splitting hairs? Well, kind of, but bear with me. A policeman can stop traffic, not because he has the power to, but because he has the authority to. See, a policeman can walk out with a blue suit and a badge and just hold up his hand and get a whole row of cars to stop. It's not like some superhero where the car hits him and he just pushes them all back like that. That would be power. But they stop because of authority. Now, authority only works if people voluntarily submit to it, though, right? Because if you don't submit to the authority, then it takes power. So, also, he has a gun, he could shoot out tires, spike strips, you know, he can stop it with power also. 
Now, God has both power and authority. God could make us do things. But it's not in his nature because he gave us all self-will, not free will. That's often a misnomer. We have free will. No, we really have self-will. In other words, there's two kingdoms in conflict, two divisive powers in this world pulling us in opposite directions. We are the middleman always choosing between true and false, right and wrong, good and evil. But we are the ones that make the choice, and we can voluntarily submit to God. And But he's not in this age going to use power to make us do it. And that has to be voluntary. So with that in mind, you might recognize this. It's a Ten Commandment. You've heard of those. <laughs> Thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord God in vain. You ever think about what that verse really means, what that commandment is really all about? See, I grew up in a Sunday school down in Hurley, South Dakota, and they had the Ten Commandments on the wall, and that was one of them. And somehow this commandment morphed into, don't use dirty words. <laughs> don't you dare say those seven words that George Carlin said you can't say on TV. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I still remember, I think, six of them. <laughs> but somehow this verse morphed into, don't swear. And when you think about it, you're going, wow, how did they end up there from here? The first part of this, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God. What is the name of God? See, or what's its significance? The significance of your name is it embodies your identity, doesn't it? It embodies who or what you are. In a lot of families, they worried not about their own reputation, but they had a family reputation in the community. That's why if one of their kids broke bad, it made the whole family look bad because now the family name was associated with that. I mean, if, how many people are still named Hitler? <laughs> you know, those families change their name because of one guy, and that name is forever tainted because of what one of their family members did. Not a popular name in Germany anymore. And that's just one of many examples. And names used to mean something. I mean, if, you're, if you come from a European side of things, your name was either relational, who your family was, Nelson's son, Nelson, uh, Peter's son, Peterson, uh, Anderson's son, Anderson, uh, John's son, Johnson. So it was either relational or it was occupational. Uh, carpenter, you know, Durr, your carpenter. Schumacher, shoemaker. Uh, Hooper and Cooper, barrel makers. So your last name was identified with what you did. Uh, in other cultures, uh, I knew a Native American whose name was Goods Plenty, uh, uh, Brings Plenty. Well, it was pretty obvious, you know, why they were called that. And, you know, we were joking in the earlier service, you know, I bet he got invited to all the parties. <laughs> Make sure you invite Brings Plenty. <laughs> yeah. And so... Or in other cultures, you don't really even get your name until you're, you're an adult, because they don't know your identity, really, until you become of age. So your name is significant. But in this context, it actually go, takes it a step further, because 
what it's really talking about is almost like a power of attorney. Uh, I think we're all maybe familiar with what a power of attorney is. It's a legal document, a legal arrangement where somebody else is given the right to use your name, to sign your name to documents as if they were you. So they could borrow money and sign your name and you'd have to be have to pay that back. Or they can make medical decisions for you and you're bound by them. And you see, when it says don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, what that really is talking about is This is my favorite definition of in vain. To use God's name irreverently in false affirmations or in ways that impugn the character of God. See, I love that because how many times have we heard people say things that God would never say and then they follow it up with, thus saith the Lord. (laughs) No, God wouldn't say that. God would never say that. Or they've done things and said, well, I'm a Christian. And then they rip you off. Or they, I'm a Christian. And then they lie to you. But you see, if you really think about it, if there are people that are not Christian, see, this is the one reason why I, I respect Satanists for one reason. They're at least honest enough to tell you what they believe in. That's the only reason I respect them. But at least you know what you're dealing with. And I'll take a Satanist over a false Christian any day because at least you know where they're coming from. But if I were a devil, I'd put my best soldiers in the church and put them under the banner of Christianity and dress them like Christians and then have them do their dirty deeds. And then who gets blamed? The devil? No, God. See, that's part of the deception. So... But that's what using God's name in vain really looks like, and I think then it makes more sense why any forceful persuasion done in the name of God is not authentic. It's not really under God's banner. It looks like it, but it's not. And that's where this next thing really started to make sense to me, because I can't judge things by perceptions alone. See, with the devil, you get bondage with the illusion of freedom. With God, you get freedom with the illusion of bondage. See, when I was out there running and gunning, uh, I was addicted to anything I could get my hands on, and I thought I was free. My own guy, go where I want, when I want. You know, I'm free. I felt free. (laughs) I didn't realize what a short leash I was on until I tried to get off of it. And then I realized, wow, I'm, I'm in bondage. He used to have an old uh, collie on the farm that way. He wasn't the brightest dog. Great dog, dumb. <laughs> and you'd put him on a leash, and he didn't understand how that worked. He'd see something across the yard that he wanted, and he'd take off in a full run. He'd hit the end of that, that rope and just oh, smack. And I'd laugh at that, but... You know, oh, it's pretty dumb. And then I'd go into town on Saturday night and do the same thing. (laughs) But I didn't know I was on a leash until I tried to test the end of it. See, as long as he's laying in the yard, he felt fine. But when he tried to get past it, he realized that he was in bondage. And 
But with God, I'd look at the Christians and go, man, that must be horrible. Man, all the, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do this other, and can't go here, can't go there. And then you gotta, gotta, gotta. Gotta sit in church, and blah, 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 and you gotta give all this money to them, and gotta work for charities, and blah, blah, blah. And it just looked horrible. Well, you see, it looked bad to me because it was the illusion of bondage. It never dawned on me that these people had lives superior to my own. <laughs> They had, they had what I didn't have, peace. And after all, isn't that the point? Peace? So it's perceptions versus reality. So to wrap all this up, this is the greatest spiritual truth that I've ever heard in my life. I love this. God will always change our behaviors by changing our desires. God will always change our behaviors by changing our desires. Here's the great news, and this is where what freedom looks like. In Christianity, you get to do exactly what you want to do. You just find as time goes on, you want to do different things. And that's as free as it gets. Freedom. What does the Holy Spirit provide? Three basic things we're instructed to pray for. Knowledge, willingness, and power. See, I used to have knowledge of God's will, but I didn't want to do that. And even if I wanted to, I'd fail miserably because I didn't have the power to carry it out. Three things we ask God for. Knowledge of His will for us, a change of heart so we want to do it His way, and the power to carry it out. When we're given knowledge, willingness, and power, not only is that freedom, but it's practical it's effective because then we can get we can accomplish things that were impossible before and that's the key to it all and you see and that's where we factor in the living example of Jesus himself if you study Christ's life what he did he always influenced but never controlled all the people he encountered that's recorded in the bible he took them for where they were at accepted them for who and what they were, but he didn't leave them that way. He always cleaned them off, dusted them off, provided for their short-term needs, be it food or water, healing, whatever they needed, and then he would point them in the right direction and walk with them a step or two. And see, that's spiritual influence. Always influenced, encouraged people to go a better direction, but never made them, never forced them to do anything. And if that's how Christ did it, then maybe that's how we should do it too. Thank you. So as we wrap this up in closing prayer, we just want to say, uh, Lord, thank you so much for your love, for your power, your way of life, and just help us to not be subject to other people's manipulation and control. Give us the strength to follow you and not them. And when we're in that position of authority, please help us likewise, Lord, to be a good shepherd like you and to rely on attraction rather than promotion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.